Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Stocks for beginners. Phil Muscatello and FinPods are authorized reps of Money Sherpa. The information in this podcast is general in nature and doesn't take into account your personal situation. All of these super investors, the one theme that they have, technically two, they're incredibly calm, level-headed, and they all are able to see the world for what it is. And a lot of these investors start giving it back later in their life, and a lot of them wish that they could have sooner. Hi, and welcome back to Stocks for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. Do you feel competent and confident when a friend, family member, or professional colleague mentions a personal finance topic? Is your understanding of financial terms still at a very basic level? Joining me today is someone who wrote a book on this and put the cap in capital lies. Hello, Chris. Phil, it is so great to be here. And you know, I really wish I knew you before we had the audio come out, because just that intro alone, right? I don't know what it is about you Aussies down south, but you have the most legendary, relaxing voices in the world. And if this doesn't work out, you've got a second career. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, you know, I have worked in radio my whole life, but to my regret, I never was on air until now having a podcast. I've always been behind the scenes. But anyway, that's the way the cookie crumbles. And, you know, we reach these points in our lives, don't we? That's right. That's right. Well, and you know what? Better late than never. And I'm really glad that you're here. And I'm excited to chat with you and your listeners about capitalizing one's finances. Okay. Well, we better introduce you then. Christopher A. Paniotu was introduced to investing at the tender age of 10. Chris feels extremely blessed to have discovered Lucia Capital Group. And in 2015, he began his journey to grow what is now Capitalize Your Finances. In his nearly seven years at Lucia Capital Group, Chris built his practice from scratch, going from zero to nearly $100 million. That's funds under management, I'm assuming, Chris? Yes. In that time span, outside of the office, Chris hosts the podcast, Capitalize Your Finances, Roots for the Oregon Ducks, and most importantly, loves spending time with his wife, Stephanie, and baby girl, Abigail. Yes. Just Well, let's have a look at your origin story then. How did you start investing at the age of 10? Yeah. So, and for those of you down South that are not familiar, I graduated from the University of Oregon. Their mascot is the Ducks. For us, American football is obviously like basically a religion up here. So that is where the Oregon Ducks come from. I know when people listen to that, they're like, who the heck are the Ducks? I was like, if you come to the States, you'll know exactly what what we mean. But oh, that's okay. We, un- we understand football here in Australia as well. <laughs> good. Okay, good. So regarding the origin, I remember actually it's it's funny so this may come as a shocker to you but i was kind of a stinker when i was little i never did anything majorly bad but i got a lot of looks from my mom like you know you probably shouldn't do what you're about to do and then i would i would do it so locally at the time there was a small little coffee shop called starbucks that was flourishing in the pacific northwest and my mom had some coffee and she told me not to drink it and so she goes around the corner and at nine years old, I, of course I took a sip because why listen to your mom and fell in love with it. After I got scolded 
I remember being immediately hooked to coffee. I loved it. And I thought, man, it'd be really cool to get a piece of the action. Now, I grew up in a financial literate household. I have no relation with with my father anymore, nor do I, I desire to. But he was a Warren Buffett, not just a fan, almost like a cult follower, if you will. And so he understood investing and he said, hey, you could get a piece of this by buying a business. And I, I thought that, I mean, I'm holding my iPhone, but pretend that this is a piece of coffee or, or a cup of coffee. I thought that was me owning, which was, you know, silly. And I remember for my 10th birthday. Although it's not, it's not a bad analog though, to think of it that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. It wasn't that. I mean, it could have been worse. So for my 10th birthday, I actually received the Intelligent Investor. And it was the Intelligent Investor with Jason Zwig's translations after every chapter, which was super helpful. Now, with all of that being said, I understood, I'm being generous here, maybe 0.5% of the book. It was very painful. But the big things I understood was, I need to get involved. I need to get into this. And I remember my grandparents had set aside a couple hundred dollars for my college fund. And you also got to understand that was May 31st of 2001. And the first two investments I made were Starbucks and Microsoft. I understood, hey, you need to invest in what you know, and you need to invest in things that you think are going to be around forever. And at the tender age of 10, I knew everyone was drinking Starbucks. Also, again, we're in the Pacific Northwest. That is where it was started. And then also, coincidentally, that's where Microsoft started. And for me, my Crohn's was really bad growing up. I've had Crohn's disease my whole life. And so I went from being athletic to not being able to go outside. So I became friends with all of my buddies that play video games. And at the time, all of the computer games were on Microsoft. There was no other way. So in my elementary mind, I'm like, well, everyone plays video games, right? And made those two purchases right after that. Obviously, 9-11 happened, the bubble burst in the dot-com crash, and my whopping $400 portfolio was cut in half. And I was devastated. But then I remember my mom telling me to go reread the book. And I reread it again. I understood a little bit more of it. And that's really what got the ball rolling in understanding there's a huge difference between volatility and a business doing bad. I understood to remove emotion very quickly. And that really set the stage for me compounding my knowledge into what I have today. It's incredible when you think about it, though, that volatility in terms of the price of a stock going up and down is far greater than volatility of earnings, isn't it? Those earnings will be a lot less volatile. And it's just something that we lose sight of when we see the, all that red on the screen. Yeah. Well, and I'm also going a step further on that, and look, I, I might get some slack from some of my followers. Of course, I'm a Warren Buffett fan, but I'm not like he's not God right? Like there's no perfection there. One thing that he says, and I guess said and still says is I became a better investor because I run a business and I run a better business because I'm a, I'm a good investor or something like that. And he's also really good at just like spitting out those one-liners that are philosophical and you feel both incredibly smart and then more dumb after you've heard it. And I would extrapolate on that. I didn't really start to understand the world of investing until I spun off of my previous employer and started Capitalize Your Finances. And the reason why I say that is now, oh, you know, you know your balance sheet. You know 
your profit and loss. You know your cash flow statement, the big three. And I actually had my bookkeeper customize our practices, big three statements with just obsessive detail. And my CPA made fun of me. He's like, you're not going to sell. I'm like, well, no, but I need to understand the details because then if I have, right, Microsoft as an example, or Starbucks or whoever comes across my desk, I now have a true business owner's mindset on it. And I can live the earnings, like you said, and understand that, hey, they, they're really not volatile at all. But then you compare it to the price and you're like, okay, well, this is so out of whack. And there's no emotion, none. And I think it's healthy, but I wish people truly understood if you're going to be a better investor, it's great to run a business because once you run a business and you know the numbers, like there's no nerves in the world of investing for me ever. But that's the basis of value investing. And I just want to preface it that we're recording today on the 93rd birthday of Warren Buffett. So uh, happy birthday, Warren. Happy but, birthday, um, Warren. Yeah. And uh, this is something that I think it's a trap we all fall into. We hear these great quotes and then we feel that we can spit them out when we're feeling confident talking to family and friends at functions, as we mentioned in the introduction. However, they're a lot more nuanced than that. And, you know, you really have to think about them and you don't just spout them. You've actually got a really understanding. And, and what we're just talking about now is about value investing and buying companies at good value. Can you expand a little bit further on that? Sure. And I can tell you right off the bat. So there's this whole perception in our industry on the investment side of the aisle, because I'm on the planning side of the aisle. I happen to be obsessed with the investment side, which I would rather do it my way than learn from the, the other side. That's another story. But value versus growth. So there's this notion of you either buy a business because you think it's going to grow and you're investing in the fact that you're banking on that growth to occur, which means it's going to be expensive. Or there's a company that may not necessarily grow as much, but it's so cheap that once it gets back to what it should be valued at, you're going to earn a nice little return. That's value. Yeah, they're such arbitrary distinctions, aren't they? Yeah, I can tell you probably up until two years ago, I would have considered myself a value investor through and through. Two years ago, I read Uncommon Stocks and Uncommon Profits by Phil Fisher. And without getting into the weeds of it, because I'm sure most of your listeners have read it, and if you have not, you need to, Phil Fisher was the first investor of the past a legendary investor of the past that got me to think, okay, you know, sometimes companies that are more expensive, they deserve to be more expensive, but that doesn't mean that they don't have value. And then you look at companies that would be considered value companies and they have so much room to run. They have an incredible runway of growth, but maybe most people, you know, they may or may not be able to see it. And so two years ago, I had this come to Jesus with myself going, screw the whole terminology. Like ask anyone that runs a business. Like if someone came up to me and said, Chris, is your company more like a large cap value or a small cap growth? Like I would look at you. Well, I'm kind. But if I wasn't kind, I would look at you like a deer in the headlights. I'm like, what do you mean? Like what business owner doesn't want their business to grow and provide value to themselves? And so you know, a couple of years ago, I started scrapping that whole ideology. And it's been really healthy for me because the best investors that I've gotten to know, and I've gotten to interview some, some amazing ones. I got to meet Robert Hegstrom a couple of years ago. 
He's become a good friend. Gautam Bade, the hedge fund manager, came on. We have Guy Spear coming on our show in a couple of weeks. So I've gotten to know all of these guys and gals. And the one common theme I've seen is none of them fit into a box. And they all have different flavors of getting to the success that they've gotten to. Um, Monish Pabrai is another great one. But as long as they have that fluid mentality of investing, I think that's what separates them from the rest. And so I've just, I've cloned their framework and I've done that for myself. Now, one thing I, I do want to mention above and beyond that. So a lot of these investors out there, they only invest in one particular asset class, whether it's stocks or bonds or whatever the case is. And in fact, in a couple of weeks, I'm actually coming out with an episode on the endowment model, which is how I've grown my net worth. I grow my client's net worth if it's prudent for them. And I got a chance to really dive into the weeds of Yale's endowment and uh, David Swenson, Dr. David Swenson, RIP. And that opened my eyes to a whole new world of investing. And, you know, you combined how Yale's grown their endowment with Charlie Munger's advice of as long as your money's doing what needs to happen for you, kind of forget what everyone else thinks. He has more colorful language. He's earned it at almost 100. I think people just become much more at peace with their investment framework and philosophy. I think that's something that's missing on Wall Street. And that's what I'm trying to do with my show is bring people that peace. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The stock market is a wealth-building machine. Over long periods of time, stocks have consistently outperformed any other investment option. But how do you cope with the stress, the noise, and the emotional turmoil that hits you hard every day? Seven Investing knows the importance of being in the market for the long term. Seven Investing offers seven stock recommendations a month. These are their best ideas, which are actionable buys in the stock market. They're also a fun bunch of people. Seven Investing are pleased to offer listeners of this podcast a free trial for a week and 33% off the annual price if you sign up using the promo code STOCKS FOR BEGINNERS. Believe me, this is solid research from experienced advisors who live and breathe the markets. Seven Investing, long-term thinking without the mental anguish. So you're a CFP. And you're talking to a lot of people that come to you. Do you get that question is, this is something that I've heard people uh, who work in the industry say, is that many people just come up and say, how much money can I make? Rather than really thinking about their whole of life that is required in terms of their financial journey. That's a great question. I can tell you, it depends on what age you're talking. So I'm 32. And I can tell you from 20s up until mid forties, the questions are basically the same. Obviously, if you're a little older, chances are you probably have kids that are older, assuming you have kids and there's things that come along with that. But most people at that stage just ask, how do I start? 
if they haven't already. And if they have, generally speaking, they've got an advisor planner that doesn't call them, treats them like garbage and talks to them kind of like an asshole and pretty low bar, right? <laughs> like pretty low bar. I can tell you, you once have, you just have to step over it. Huh? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, like it's shuffle over it. I mean, it's a piece of paper. That's how tall the bar is. And I can tell you from 45, basically till 60, I guess, and above, that is where people get a little bit more anxious. They want to take their foot off the gas, but it's a planning conversation. A lot of people in our industry get very confused on the difference between, and it's alphabet soup over here. There's CFP, there's CFA. I'm a chartered retirement plan specialist as well, or a CRIP, as we say. So the way I explain it to people is you've got a CFP that quarterbacks the whole thing. And one thing that was really big for me is explaining to people that investments come and go, but your strategy has to remain the same. And you got to have a framework with that. Once you understand that, then you open up pieces of that strategy. And that's where particular investments like classes, real estate, stocks, private equity, whatever, those come into play. And then once you understand that and agree upon it with the client, then at that point, you actually start allocating your investments appropriately. It's a totally different mind shift though, because a lot of people that have had an advisor or planner come into my office and they'll say, like at the second meeting, you haven't really brought up like my risk tolerance. And I mean this very respectfully, I don't care. And there's academic reasoning why I don't care. Like it's one of the worst things that you can ask because then you're selling based on emotion. I was one of the top advisors at UBS in Morgan Stanley before I left and went to Lucia Capital Group and then started my own. And I mastered the art of emotional sales. It was the slimiest thing in the world, Phil. Every day I wanted to come home and take a bath because I just, I, I felt awful. And then I discovered the Dalbar study, which is a study on behavioral finance where it shows that the average person that succumbs to traditional advice loses to inflation by like half a percent over the years. So I just said, screw it. I'm, I'm done. I'm not going there. And so I guess your point on the questions that come up, I'm pretty big on guiding that conversation so the incorrect questions don't ever arise. Because the second you start off on that wrong foot, one, it's impossible, almost impossible to get them back to square one. And then number two, you know you're going to do them a disservice and they're going to be in this constant cycle of emotional unintelligence with money. It's interesting that risk tolerance questionnaire because what you write in an office when there's no emotions involved and when you're feeling good about yourself is completely different to what you're going to feel when that risk or volatility, because these terms are interchangeable, when you're actually experiencing it, you're not, you're not going to know. You can't judge for yourself how that's going to go. So I just wanted to move on. Yeah, so let's talk about that, but also to talk about in terms of as, as an, a planner and someone who's interested in investing as well. Are you more likely to be talking about a whole range of investments as opposed to just, okay, here's a bunch of mutual funds, just put your money in here and we'll sit and forget it for the rest of your life? Yeah. And, and let me let me make sure I understand the question as, as well, because for you, you're basically asking, so when someone comes in, do I just have like a set amount of funds? 
like mutual funds as an example. Not so much that- not so much that. No, it's just more that most uh, planners or many planners would have a set universe of funds that they just put people's uh, money into. Or do you steer them more into investments that you think might be personally better for them? That. So again, strategically, so I'll break it down for you. Assuming someone's come in, right? They understand. They're like, Chris, this sounds great. Let's go through a plan. So for your audience, they are going to really only like two of the boxes that I educate people on or enlighten, if you will, the stock market bucket and the alternative investment bucket. And so I have some compliance issues and restrictions that I have, which also, even if I didn't, I would still abide by them because there's illiquidity with alternatives, different risks, whatever the case is. And once we all understand that, as long as I know how much money needs to go in each box, that is when I open it up and I make the judgment call on what a client necessarily needs. For example, let's say a client comes in and we're just talking the market and they go, or they don't even say anything. I can tell they are nervous Nellies. They're probably not going to stomach a concentrated stock portfolio. I could even take it a step further and say they're probably not going to stomach a 35 to 40 stock portfolio. And they may not even be able to stomach like an ETF portfolio. So if you have a mutual fund portfolio, which we've utilized for clients, that might be the most optimal. Does it still fit within the box? Does it fit within the box for them? Yes. That's where you just got to know the client from a risk standpoint. Now, if someone comes in and, and, you know, like my mom says, Chris, do the things, right? Like they they just don't care. They just want you to treat them how you would treat yourself. Frankly, I kind of like the concentrated stock portfolio. Why? That's how I got into this business in the first place. I could argue it's less risky because you understand the businesses, but that's a philosophical conversation, which was not a pun on your name, by the way. So, you know, you could do that. You could have, because some people are index fund warriors. Great. We have those as well. So it is a much more custom thing. No different than the alternative side of things. Some people are so gung-ho on real estate. Well, if that's the case, we've got those options. Some people want to have a a different layer. Lending has become really popular in the actually globally because banks aren't doing it. Thank you, 08. So then lending, business development companies become valuable. And then some people like owning private equity because they came from privately owned businesses. Well, what's kind of cool with that is if you used all of those, clients won't appreciate that because what they'll see is they'll see their statement and then they kind of just see this boring ass line over the years. But then behind the scenes as a planner, in my mind, I've done my job. I don't want to hear anyone complain about a boring whatever the return is, right? Of course, we want to earn as much as possible, but as long as I earn net of tax of six at a low bar, no one will be mad at that. Not a single person. And if they are, tough bananas, right? Like maybe I'm not the guy. But I think there's a huge difference between what a lot of these advisors and planners do. They already know where they're investing your money before you sit down, right? I don't have a clue until I actually know what the hell's going on. And then the strategy, the framework of capitalizing one's finances dictates exactly where everything needs to go. And then I put my risk hat on and say, okay, now that I know, right, aggressive Alan or negative Nancy, 
now we can recapitalize, pun intended, their plan accordingly. Aggressive Alan and what was it? Negative Nancy? Negative Nancy. <laughs> like yeah. Are they technical financial planning terms? Are they Chris? high <laughs> level? They don't teach you that in school. <laughs> so we started out when I introduced you talking about being confident, talking about finance in a group situation. What are some of the tips that you would say and how can people turbocharge their investing knowledge so that they can stand out at these social gatherings? Oh, all right. This is unconventional, but I think it's the best answer. Listen, so a lot of people in, in this business, when people ask questions, this is part of me putting my sales hat on. So like, sorry, but it's the honest to God truth. When I first started in the business, I didn't have the big name. I didn't have the team. I didn't have the experience. I mean, I thought I did, but at 22, people don't believe that. There was a lot of things I didn't have. So very quickly, I had to realize what can I do that's going to separate me from everyone else? And it was mastering the art of sales. And part of that was understanding eyes, mouth, what's coming out of it, body language. And I studied that intensely. In fact, that's going to be my second book, Capitalize Your Sales, coming out next year. And what I started to realize was initially I did it to survive. But then secondarily, as I got more comfortable and my business was growing, I started to realize, wait a second, I've been genuine all along. So a lot of these people in sales, they think, oh man, like this guy's going to teach me how to look up different eyes and match, you know, what's coming out of their mouth, if they're audible or kinesthetic, whatever the case is. As I started to develop, I understood, oh my gosh, all of these techniques are just making me better at genuinely listening. And it's really brilliant because I've had meetings with people and they're like, I'm in. I didn't say a word about what I do. Now, it's a little different now with the brand and all of that because then people hear from me. And so I don't get that as much. But even a couple of years ago, I would have these meetings. All I would do is ask questions because I genuinely don't know what someone needs. And at the end, they're like, I'm ready. I'm ready to rock and roll. And in an investment side of things, when I bought people on the podcast, I remember I met Robert Hegstrom. We had an introductory call. Look, the guy oversees like billions of dollars. He was a protege of Bill Miller, one of the best investors of all time. He worked like Mason. He wrote the Warren Buffett portfolio, Warren Buffett way. There is nothing on God's green earth that I could have taught that guy about investing. But I listened. And that's when he decided to come on the show. We're still friends this day. And I did teach him a thing or two. I'm, I'm going to pat, pat myself on the back there. But that's what I would tell people. If you're surrounded by people that understand the world of investing, or they think they understand it, just ask questions and listen. So what have you listened and learned from some of your guests? Oh, boy. Just one or two, you know? Yeah. Well, I'm trying to think. I know, of- I know, I'm, I know I'm putting you on the spot here. Chris. No. Hey, you know, here's the thing. With a shirt like this, I'm always on the spot. So like, I, I totally get that. Now, I would say one right off the bat was Gautam Bade, who's become a, a good friend. Shout out, Gautam. His book, The Joys of Compounding, it was such a great book that I was, my wife can vouch for this. I was actively sad when it was done. Like I wanted more which 
you know, this guy committed years of his life to this book. So like, that was it. He, he tapped out. One of the things that stood out in his book was the four pillars of wealth. So the first pillar is we're all just hustling, getting out there, trying to make it happen. The second tier is living paycheck to paycheck, but that's a compliment because you're not going backwards. And then the third tier is where most people cap out it, not a pun intended. And that's where it's like the traditional retirement, right? You've, you've saved some money, put it aside. You've ridden off into the sunset if you wanted to. And the fourth layer, like the final pillar is what was really intriguing to me because that's where you're good. Your kids are good. Your kids, kids, kids are good. You could triple your income from portfolio. Not that you're going to, and you'd still be fine. Cause at that point you see the world for what it really is. And I always thought that was fascinating. I've complimented Gautam multiple times on that. That would be the single biggest piece that I've learned. And I'm not saying I'm at this level, but I'd like to think my wife and I are around in the corner. <laughs> and going on top of that, Guy Spear, who hasn't come on the show yet, but you know, we've had some direct messages on Instagram and LinkedIn. One thing that I'm curious to ask, and I think I already know what he's going to say, is all of these super investors, the one theme that they have, technically two, they're incredibly calm, level-headed, and they all are able to see the world for what it is. And the reason why I find that fascinating, and I'm going to ask him, he started to give back his knowledge. And a lot of these investors start giving it back later in their life, and a lot of them wish that they could have sooner. And so one of the things I'm going to ask him is, why did you decide to wait so long? And I think he's going to say, because I never really understood the value of the goodwill that I had to provide. And I won't give too much away because y'all are going to have to listen to the episode when it comes out. But those are the two biggest things I've learned from listening understanding the four pillars of wealth. And then the second one is if you are blessed enough to get to that fourth pillar, it is a shame if you are not a steward of that and you give back to those that are starting at the bottom. The stock market is a wealth building machine. Over long periods of time, stocks have consistently outperformed any other investment option. But how do you cope with the stress, the noise, and the emotional turmoil that hits you hard every day? Seven Investing knows the importance of being in the market for the long term. Seven Investing offers seven stock recommendations a month. These are their best ideas, which are actionable buys in the stock market. They're also a fun bunch of people. Seven Investing are pleased to offer listeners of this podcast a free trial for a week and 33% off the annual price if you sign up using the promo code STOCKS FOR BEGINNERS. Believe me, this is solid research from experienced advisors who live and breathe the markets. Seven Investing, long term thinking without the mental anguish. It's interesting that you say that they didn't realize how much goodwill that they held. Mm-hmm. And because a lot of these investors, they're very quiet about what they do. They don't want to talk about it and they don't really feel that they've got any value to add. Yeah. But they have so much knowledge and they, they can help so many people. And when they do, they realize it and it's, um, yeah, hats off to them. Yeah. Part of it, I'll give a couple benefits of the doubt. So like Warren Buffett, I'll just pick him. He's got to be really careful because he can literally move markets, you know, mm-hmm. to a significantly lesser extent. All of these other investors I talked to you about, I get why they keep it rather closed off 
because some of them get a little anxious that people listening will just blatantly copy them. However, one thing I've learned, and this actually isn't from an investor, it's from Dr. Craig Israelson, who's one of the head finance professors at BYU. That was one of my most valuable interviews for me. And his quote hit me hard. And I've, I have had a ton in my book. Investing in planning is like salsa. So everyone loves salsa. Some like it sweet, some like it spicy, some like it, you know, tart, fruity. But as long as you know your salsa, you're golden. And I think a lot of these super investors are starting to understand that they can give away some of their salsa because it's never going to be exactly matched. So I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt. The one thing I will say, which is interesting, and I think the first person to kind of break the glass ceiling, if you will, was Peter Lynch back in the day. But even Peter Lynch didn't really give his framework away until, what, 20 years after he was done? And some of these people, and I respect them greatly for it, because I struggle with this a lot. I, and I realize this, I actually probably talk and explain too much, but I would much rather do that than not enough and make someone feel like an idiot. But you look at like Peter Lynch, for example, would I go and invest in Toys R Us today? No. I mean, it's literally bankrupt, but in the eighties, that was one of his best investments because it was a great company. So a lot of these super investors, what I've noticed is, and I've started to do this in my show, is I want people to have sprinkles of how I thought back in the day. And if you can take that framework and apply it to present day, that's where you're going to find your best value. But then you got to put in the work. And some people just don't want to put in the work. And that's right. It's, it's, It's all about putting in the work as well. I mean, you can't just capture a secret source and uh, implement it straight away. There's no way, because there's nothing about the mindset behind it as well, is there? Not, no. Nothing. Well, and, and yeah, and you've got to love it, you know? I mean, you- You um, you can't teach passion. You cannot teach passion. Man, yeah, you could have dropped the mic on that one. You can't teach passion. That's right, Phil. So what are some of the common investing mistakes that you've seen people making? confirmation and anchoring bias. I'm not a tattoo guy. I don't have any tattoos, but if I was feeling a little frisky, those would probably be the two tattoos I'd get on my back because those are brutal. Anchoring, here's a prime example. Now I'm not giving investment advice here or there, but people that like have invested in Tesla, I'm just picking Tesla, 90%, and I'm probably being generous here, are not investing based on true fundamentals of the business. They're investing because, and some of these reasons are very valid. They may think electric cars are the way of the future. Could be true, could not be, I don't know. Tesla could be the top electric car manufacturer, could be true. Then you've got people that are just cultishly obsessed with Elon Musk. And that's a huge danger because if he's gone, what do you have? I made that mistake. I was a, a Alan Malilly fan at Ford when he came and left Boeing after he saved him and came over to, to Ford. I'm like, done. Great American brand, great American man, great foundation and framework. I'm in. High dividend. They couldn't afford it, but I was lured to it. So those are some of the common mistakes that I see. People anchor into these companies and hold on for reasons that are either wrong or just insane. And then another mistake that I see, 
and this has died off a lot in recent years, but I'm probably going to get some slack from this. I don't really care, but I'm going to. Cryptocurrency is a cultish obsession. And I'm not saying everyone that invests in it has that cultish following. In fact, some of my best friends in the business have very good reasons as to why they have invested in it. But I think people are looking for these massive home runs and grand slams. And you also compound that with inflation and things are really, really tight for a lot of people. They get kind of desperate. And I'm afraid to say it, those mistakes are only going to hurt people more. So Chris, tell us about the podcast and the book. Just give us your little pitch for uh, listeners of the podcast. Yes. So the podcast Capitalize Your Finances on Spotify, Apple, and YouTube. There are three types of episodes. There are solo episodes where Chris Frey Paniotu, the cap and capitalize, comes and tells you exactly what you need to know about capitalizing your finances. The second type of episode is where we have super investors come on. And those are the Gautams, Guy Spear, Robert Hagstrom's of the world. And those are a little bit more sophisticated on the investment side. The last type of episode, and this has been rather new, we have celebrities from all walks of life coming on the show and telling you how they've capitalized on their finances. So for example, Fahim Anwar, who's best friends with Joe Rogan, really good comedian, he came on our show and basically laid out what you need to do if you want to be a successful comedian. And he's one of the top in in the country. We mentioned football. Alec Ingold has become a really good friend of mine, and he's a fullback for the Miami Dolphins. And he came on and talked about capitalizing your finances as an NFL player. Maroon 5, famous band. Ryan Dusick, the drummer, has become a really good friend of mine. And he came on and talked about his experience of being a drummer in a band like Maroon 5. So if you want to be a musician, capitalize your finances, listen to one of the best. So those are the different types of episodes that we have. And the purpose of the show is I want to give as much of this information back freely as I can, because it doesn't matter if you're focusing on yourself, if you're trying to become a better investor and learn from super investors, or you're trying to figure out what career you're going to pursue Capitalize Your Finances will be able to solve the financial side of that equation. Now, the book is my framework, Capitalize Your Finances, the how-to financial framework that takes you from compoundingly clueless to monetarily magnificent, available on Amazon, paperback, hardback, audio coming soon, and Kindle if you're really cheap. And that is my framework in a nutshell. That's 22 years of my committed knowledge, effort, blood, sweat, mainly tears, into one book. Because for whatever reason, if I am not blessed enough to meet you that are listening, but you want to have someone like me in your back pocket, for 20 bucks, you can do the whole thing on your own. Chris, we've covered hardly anything in the questions that I prepared for this interview. (laughs) So at this point, can I invite you to come back on? We'll do another episode in a month or so in your new podcast studio. Yes, Phil, I would be more than honored. And once the new podcast studio is all up and running, I cannot wait to come back on. Anytime you need me, I'm here for you, man. Fantastic. Chris, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Stocks for Beginners. If you enjoy listening, please take a moment to rate or review in your podcast player or tell a friend who might want to learn more about investing for their future.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 